0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books and Archaeology. My name is Robert Broadway, host of The Channel. Today, we'll be talking to Andrew Hemmings about his book, Clovis Technology. A paleo- Paleo-Indian specialist, Andy has spent the last 15 years looking at, paleo- the, looking at the Paleo-Indian archaeological record. I'm talking about the entire archaeological record that pertains to the earliest Paleo-Indians like Clovis and Folsom. He is the co-principal investigator at the Vero Early Man site in Vero Beach, Florida and has spent enormous amounts of time at famous and mysterious archaeological sites like Slothole, Florida. Andy is a mixed gas diver, and in collaboration with NOAA, he has been using that expertise in the Gulf of Mexico and Atlantic, looking at the Paleo-Indian landscape and over 100 feet of seawater. He has a B.A. in anthropology from the University of Arizona, and a master's and doctorate from the University of Florida. Clovis Technology has three principal authors in alphabetical order, Bruce Bradley, Michael Collins, and Andrew Hemmings, with important contributions by Marilyn Schoberg and John Lose. Available on Amazon, the book is superbly illustrated with photos and drawings, and it's written in a simple, common-sense, step-by-step, easy-to-understand way that makes a complex topic an absolute joy to read. If lithic analysis, even in general terms, is a topic that you want to know more about, then you need a copy of Clovis Technology in your library. Hello, Andy. Thank you for joining me.
1: Hi, Robert. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, glad to talk about all this.
0: <laughs> well, for those interested in North American archaeology, the term Clovis is usually the source of unending fascination. Why is that?
1: Oh, boy. I, I can think of several reasons right off the top of my head. First off, it's among the earliest cultures in the New World, and for a long time was at least thought to be the earliest culture, it comes, it, I shouldn't say it comes, we have people showing up in the new world at that particularly interesting time before everything gets rearranged. We don't lose the Pleistocene fauna yet, the ice age biotic communities are still, if not intact, they're at least still around, and there's that brief 2,000, 5,000 years where people coexist in a very alien environment. And at some point somebody was the first one in to see these animals and plants as, as they were.
0: Well tell me how the book came together. How how did you come to, to, to write Clovis Technology?
1: Um, I had a postdoc with Mike Collins at, and was involved heavily in working with the Gulf site project or the Gulp Project, which is of course the large Clovis site uh, north of Austin, Texas, about forty five miles. Something on the order of 600,000 Clovis lithics have been found there, as well as a host of uh, small animal remains and large animal remains. In the context of continuing excavations at the time at that site, Bruce Bradley uh, came over from Exeter with students, and he and Mike and eventually I got uh, drawn into discussions about writing about the technology in sort of the Grand Descent, using a lot of examples specifically from Galt, but then... Using the Gulf as sort of the Gulf sample as the jumping off point to talk about the patterns that we see in the hemispheric scale in Clovis behavior. And there's some nuances in all of that, but, but really it was Bruce uh, came with the, the, the book idea and was involved with uh, speaking to the um, uh, press, and it was originally through University of Michigan that um, we uh, you know, got our start putting this all together.
0: What what is it what's it like having unfettered elbow to access you know, elbow to elbow access to, to, to folks like Mike Collins and Bruce Bradley?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Personally, it was the best thing for my education ever. I'm I'm so dummy and I came out of school, you know, finished a PhD and had lots of ideas, some good, some it turns out not so good. And I was really hung up myself on a morphology, like most everyone else in in many respects, just that that's like how we identified these things. And I bet it took probably eighteen months of being around Mike um and, and arguing the point. And not not to simply be argumentative, but but thinking I was right and and not being right and having to relearn things and look at technological organization, pattern behavior, the the technological um factors that we see in the lithic reduction sequence. And really, that's the idea. Sequences, pattern sequences, not just form. And boy, was it hard to beat that out of my head. Well, Bruce being around as we started working on the book, you know, after a couple of years before it came out originally, um, 2010, I I was getting tag-teamed, so my bad ideas really got beat up pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Another thing that was pretty funny about it... and I, I know I annoyed Bruce, but when he would come into the Galt lab, um, he was working. He, we'd set him up with a computer in the desk in the in the artifact room, and so he was back there, you know, working away and had all sorts of things laying out and spread out. And part of my contribution, my, my my biggest contribution, is probably the bone and antler and ivory tools in the book. But I also really helped build the data set. So something they would, you know, talk about seeing a particular characteristic or feature on such and such a specimen. Well, then, I would go back through the literature and talk about, okay, that occurs at this, this, that, that and the other site. Well, I'd just walk in there where Bruce was working away. and totally derailed him. And sometimes I'd be um, just just a absolute, uh, in a bad word. Every time I would go in there with a picture and say, now, is this the true Clovis point? And I know Bruce probably got a little exasperated with me doing that, but it was pretty funny for a while. <laughs>
0: I remember when Bruce was at the University of Wyoming, and I would take Flint Napping in and show him a point that I would make, and he would just look at it and he said, "Yeah, but not really."
1: <laughs> <laughs> that, that might have been about the response I got to, "Is this the true Clovis point?" <laughs> yeah,
0: that's exactly right. He's just kind of got that—he's he, got that uh, very dry personality about him.
1: Yeah, well, well, that's part of almost the, the, the essence of, of the bifaces in that portion of the book and the research is there's no such thing as the one true Clovis point. It's the process and the manner in which it was made that that's the important takeaway.
0: Before we get into specifics um, about Clovis technology, what can you tell us in general the, the global view of, of Clovis technology?
1: I, I'm not sure the other authors would entirely agree with me, but uh, that I, I, I don't think they would disagree with me necessarily. But it, they may not feel it's the, the number one uh, lesson in this. In some respects, to me, my, my view of it of Clovis behavior, Clovis adaptation, and technology is that performance is the overriding goal. That maximizing performance, whatever that may exactly mean in any given situation, we'll get into some of that in a bit. Maximizing performance is far more important than anything else. That in order for a, a, a seemingly single technological adaptation to be found across so many different ecotones and environments over such a broad geographic area and yet a restricted chronological segment of time, has to work and quite frankly what we've learned about it is that it works very well for you know, what they were trying to do with those various implements in their toolkit.
0: Let's talk about materials for, for just a moment. In truth we don't have a complete picture of Clovis technology. These people lived 13,000 years ago and probably even before then so most of the partial material hasn't survived in, in, in the record. What are we what are we left with? What, what what are we actually talking about when we
1: That's a really interesting question. And if you look at like what Walter Taylor did originally with the material coming out of the caves in Mexico and came up with a ratio of... Oh, I'm going to blow it. There's, there's some number of stone points to some number of bone tools to some number of other organic materials. And it came out with something preposterous like the stone was a minimal part of the material culture it's maybe something on the order of 20 to maybe only 10% compared to the bone tools and the rest of the material culture is where the bulk of the numbers come from. So the ratio is something like 2 to 8 to 26 for stone, bone, and and other more perishable things, netting, cordage, stuff like that. A similar situation at Windover, and again, these are younger examples, but the idea holds, and I'll come to where i tried to replicate this sort of on my own. Uh, Windover is 86 burials, I think it is. Um, uh, I'm sorry, it's 8,600 years old, and and I think it's over 100 burials and eight stone projectile points and I think two or three flakes, and that's it for stone tools and a host of other materials. Well, at Swamp Hole, a Clovis site in the Osceola River southeast of Tallahassee, about 45 miles, we found partial remains and nearly completely remains of one, but of a four mastodons, one of which appears to have been butchered somewhere in the 11,000, 11,050 radiocarbon years ago, there's now maybe a dozen Clovis points and preforms that are known from the site, and a solid 75 or 80 long ivory points that are known from the site. And I think we're looking at simply a preservational bias. The stone tool is a comparatively small, component of the whole material culture but like you say with preservation it's just what we get you know that's what we have to work with so we do the best we can with what survives and what we're able to recover
0: when looking at a stone technology the the, the wild cards are always material quality and and, and whether that material was heat treated uh, heat treatment of course uh, improves the material quality How do these factors play into the the, the Clovis assemblage?
1: I think after going through the process of writing the book with, with Bruce and Mike, I would reshuffle that slightly. There is some evidence of heat treatment of stone during Clovis time, but it's, I would say, very unusual. It was not the norm. They seem to have held out and gone looking for the higher quality, better grade, naturally occurring stone. The way I would probably articulate my response to that would, would be to really focus on two aspects, the material quality and package size. You can have really nice material, but if it's in tiny packages, you can't make the Wenatchee points or the antique material, bifaces, out of those little packages that you're just constrained in a way that you're only going to make you know, 6-centimeter points out of 10-centimeter cobble. Mm -hmm. Um, But where you are on a lithic landscape, whether it's a lithic-rich or lithic-poor, and what kind of site we're talking about, a kill site, a cache, a habitation site, a manufacturing site, means that when you factor those variables, lithic-poor, lithic-rich, quality of stone, size of packages, activities, and I guess, I realize it gets a little complicated here pretty quick, but when you look at those specific factors in conjunction with one another, you can come pretty close to understanding exactly what's going on at any site. Because, again, there's so much pattern behavior in the manufacture and use of these tools.
0: Well, Chapter 2 opens the book, uh, begins the discussion, and and, uh, the chapter of that is Clovis blade-making technology. As far as I know, the making of blades uh, from prepared cords dates all the way back to the Aragnostian in the Old World. Um, it's a very old technology. Um, seems to uh, be followed on you know, just continuously through the Gravedian, uh, appears in the Solutrian, down through the um, all the way uh, really into the Mesolithic in Europe. Uh, it appears, uh, seems to appear now in, in, in Clovis as, as, as well. I'm not trying to make a connection between the two, but but, uh, just, well, just tell us about Clovis Blade technology and, and what does it look like uh, in general.
1: Sure, sure. Um, re- regarding your, your, your comment about um, origins a, a little bit, um, wherever people came from, whether you like Siberia, not Siberia, a coastal Siberian and Alaskan connection, whatever it is, we're talking about people that are obviously descended from Upper Paleolithic people in the Northern Hemisphere, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't come as much of a surprise that there's some level of continuity in terms of the kinds of things they're making, the specifics of that, of course, will vary as time goes on. But the the origin should not be... It shouldn't be a great surprise to us that there's continuity in behavior expressed. Um, That said... Incredibly effective tools made in a host of different forms with a very consistent technology. One of the things that came out in the writing of the book that was, and, and, and really, um, Mike Collins and John, John Most had done another uh, article or, or chapter in another volume, an edited volume, updating the Clovis Blade technology book that Mike Collins had done in 99. Basically, when he wrote that, originally, he thought that the very formal-looking conical blade cores outnumbered the wedge-shaped ones, a little bit more amorphous blade cores, he thought it was 10 to 1. By the time we got around 10 years later to writing the Clovis Technology book with Bruce, it was pretty clear the situation was reversed. The wedge-shaped cores vastly outnumber the conical blade cores. They are not as instantly recognizable as the diagnostic they are necessarily, and so part of it was just things started coming out of the woodwork as we were working on these, things, on these books and realized that there's a lot more of these materials that have been found in our in various assemblages that just have not been recognized for what they are. But I have a couple of good examples of that if you're, if you're interested. Um, Please, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wells Creek Crater in Ohio. Um, um, I, I think it's Don Drago. Uh, found a what he characterized as a humpback scraper. It wasn't actually. It was a conical blade core that had been basically exhausted, broken off in the midsection, and and flipped over and used as some sort of tool. But it really was a conical blade core, but went unrecognized as such. My other is a really a fa- my favorite story about this is that in that in 36 or by 1936. At Blackwater Draw, the tip of a conical blade core that had been knocked off as part of rejuvenation to allow additional blades to be struck that, in fact, had been retouched all the way around the the broken little sort of teardrop or pointy end of it um, had been donated or exchanged to the field museum because they just thought it was a humpback scraper. The first Clovis blade recognition, the recognition of the technology itself, is with the, the first cache found in 19, 1963 um, by, by Green at uh, Blackwater Draw. But in fact, we should have known it 30 years earlier that, that we've been holding blades and blade core fragments since the first finding of Clovis points at the Clovis type site site.
0: Hmm. When they're first struck off, the, a, a blade is about 10 times sharper than a than a razor blade. How did the Clovis people use the, the, these blades, and what cultural settings, what, what, what were they used for?
1: Oh, boy. Um, some of the most, I think, diverse documented usages are from the Galt assemblage. There's several retouched blades, some that are notched incredibly he- heavily, that they truly are serrated. They look like the edge of a steak knife. The biggest one of those has sickle sheen on it, based on Marilyn um, Schoberg's work, looking at them under the microscope. Uh, making and replicating some of these things uh and and creating similar wear. And I think it's very confident that we know that. There's another less serrated uh but but somewhat serrated, not it's not so pronounced on another blade from gold that is most certainly uh used for cutting um, fresh meat. The sickle sheen one's really interesting. I think Mike uh Collins has speculated that it may have been in fact for cutting uh Betty, that it seemed to be some sort of larger grass and that they were probably, you know, creating mounds of it or piles of it to get the amount of wear on this particular piece. One of the most interesting aspects that comes out of Galt, but there's similar things seen uh there's one at Lubbock Lake, although I think it's ascribed to it being younger. Boy, it's just screaming that it's a uh prismatic clovis blade segment that people were Povost people were, I mean, excluding the Lubbock Lake one for the moment, but uh, intentionally snapping the blades. Not exactly to create urinated edges, which of course is an incredibly strong cross-section for cutting bone or any manner of materials, but they were actually making little tiny end scrapers. Uh, sometimes they would be spurred and have a graver on them, or, or, or other things that I'm not sure we've exactly diagnosed yet, but the range of tools and modifications to the blades themselves is pretty striking. Not just the obvious effectiveness of, you know, long, long cutting tools that have an incredibly sharp edge, and uh, they, were, they were, of course, used for some woodworking, some hide working, um, meat cutting, and butchery as, as well. But the additional step of modifying the blades or breaking them into smaller segmented tools. It is really quite interesting and, and far more robust than I think anybody may have necessarily realized prior to this book coming out.
0: Mm-hmm. The, the big blades are are, are fascinating, and, and and your book makes a very uh, uh, good effort at, at showing so many photographs and 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 showing diagrams and and, and just step by step the the, the process in, in in which they were made, so that you can begin to to, to recognize. You know what these things look like, and and, and when you begin to recognize them, they're, boy, they're they're hard to miss. Um, they they seem to be present in in, in a lot of Clovis sites. Uh, I think the Folsom people, uh, uh, as far as the Folsom sites, they're, they're present in Agam Basin, pardon me, Agate Basin, and Hell Gap, Cooper, Lindenmeyer. I think the early Pale- Paleo Indians loved them. Um, but does in, in your mind does the technology decline and disappear at some point in time? Um, uh, does it continue through the archaic um, and, and uh, even into the uh, e- even later times? Uh, tell us about how it uh, tra- how it goes down and through the record
1: well uh, first off it's really critically important, and I think we stress this in various portions of the, of the book to distinguish the an incidental blade or or the not necessarily unintentional but the non technological process of a blade production versus full-on blade production. And there's a couple of good photographs in this book that are um, uh, re- re- republished from the Pablo Real report from a few years ago, another big Clovis site in Texas, where you see the complete reconstruction of the reduction sequence of blades based on refits. And the vast majority of the flakes removed from these cores are not the actual blades. There's you know core mm-hmm. tablet flakes where things are knocked off from the top and the side to generate platforms that are suitable for for firm moving blades that that really pattern amount of work uh that's what disappears. We still want long skinny blades with sharp edges to make things, and that still occurs, but it's just sort of you know a different way to skin a cat has come along and they're just doing it differently the reconstructed cores that are sort of shown in, uh, there's a couple different pages, one showing that, um, all, all back together in another exploded view and, and there's a couple more of those in the Blade chapter really give you the idea of what I said earlier about trying to maximize performance. They're really going after just the right tool. That seems to be in contrast to what you're talking about with Folsom and other post-Clovis technological adaptations. They're just after something different and boy, it really matters to Clovis people to get what they want. There's a Mm. lot of waste. It's not efficient at all. It's incredibly inefficient, but it's also, I think, incredibly functional that what they are really after, when they're not constrained by, you know, limited amounts of stone, boy, they go after getting exactly what they want. And you you see that in the blades as well as the other kinds of materials that we'll talk about shortly.
0: Mm. Well, let's move to Chapter 3, Clovis Bifacial Technology. The term biface and bifaces, you know, that's a mini-splendored thing. What was a biface to Clovis people?
2: (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Uh,
1: Boy, boy, that's really strange. That's really a hard... I feel almost blindsided by it, because my, my answer is so couched in how I, as an archaeologist and on what other people have published, what we as archaeologists, I would say, what what it means to us, um, admittedly, is not necessarily going to line up with what people were doing prehistorically. It's sort of our own view proposed on top of that, which I freely admit, but I I struggle to think about uh, exactly what that means in terms of trying to answer your question sufficiently to... I sure don't want to speak for somebody that lived thirteen thousand years ago.
0: <laughs> well, how did they make them?
1: Well, well uh, just, uh, let, let me say one more thing. I was thinking here that um, that that well, there's both. There's I, I think it's almost all the, the evidence that we have in hand is almost all for direct percussion, whether it's soft hammer, hard hammer, or largely when we get hammerstones or napping tools in Clovis context. They are chert cobbles that have cortex on them. And it's this sort of in-between. It's a soft hard hammer that the cortex absorbs a lot of the the abuse and, and gets very pitted in a very characteristic way. But, you know, soft hammer billets, we just don't see them. They don't survive very often. There's Maybe one in Tennessee made from ivory. There's the billet from Blackwater Draw. And that's about it. So our mapping tool assemblage is pretty small. The bifaces themselves are pretty interesting and, and, and I, I know part of how I should answer your question is to say, quite frankly, bifaces have as much variation as, as all the rest of the toolkit. It's not simply making bifaces that are on their way to becoming points. There's a small but significant number of, of truly circular or discoidal bifaces that have not, seemingly nothing to do with the, the point reduction trajectory. There's smaller other kinds of things that are that are just odd-shaped bifaces, too small, regular, or often to have actually been used for making points or any other thing. They may be ends in themselves. I think I've certainly disabused myself of the notion that the cores. Sorry, I'm sorry. That the bifaces are necessary. those bifaces are being used as flake cores. Mm -hmm. I think they are, but I think that's incidental to being made to make a different kind of tool. Whether it's, you know, biface to preform to unfinished point to point, the the bulk of the material, the bulk of the bifaces obviously seem to be in that trajectory, but the flakes that come off are incidental. They high-grade the good ones and use them, but I think you really are in a situation where you can't do both Effectively, that you're doing one or the other, and and seeing how much stone is discarded at manufacturing sites like Pavo Real or Gulf, for example. That uh, when they're going after making the right thing, they go after that one thing. It's not they're not trying to do all things in in one shot. So mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: a large amount of variation, but really aimed at specific trajectories, not trying to skin. Uh, Try, not not trying to solve all problems with one biface and the flakes that come off of it. When,
0: when you look at Clovis biface reduction, uh, and you compare that with Salutrian biface reduction, do you see similarities? In, 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 you know where I'm going with that. There, there's the big debate with the uh, the Salutrian uh, hypothesis. Do, do do you see any uh, in, any uh, any relationship there with, with how uh, those two cultures were were creating bifaces?
1: Yeah, yes, absolutely. But whether it's convergence or direct descendant and, um, and cultural antecedent relationship, uh, I, honestly, I have no idea. I really kind of don't care. And my reason for saying that is, I mean, obviously I would like to know, but the purpose with the book and my, my interest in trying to find this stuff out is to explain the archaeological record of the Americas. And unfortunately, far too much, far too often, the argument about Solutrean connections has been reduced to now the single characteristic of overshot flaking or beyond midline flaking or any number of other sort of other terms that have been employed to describe the phenomenon of hitting a flake on one side and trying to drive off a portion of the flake on the or a portion of the biface on the other side in a controlled intentional manner. And, and that's a an obviously critical important aspect to keep in mind. The overshot flake is just one of twenty or twenty one criteria in terms of tasks that had to be accomplished on the manufacturing trajectory from raw piece of stone or small become a biface, recognizable as a preform, then an unfinished point on its way to being a finished Clovis point. How many of those fit with Salutrian is actually rather surprising. The finished form is very different normally, you know, not having but a handful of concave-based Salutrian points. But they do exist. Not necessarily fluted, but looking more like Clovis points than I think anybody would be really comfortable with other than Dennis Stanford and Bruce Bradley. And I, I, I tease slightly in that regard, but it's far more complicated. There's far more similarities. Uh, the, uh, getting the, the edge centered, so that if you imagine your, your hand is a bi and, and you make your fingers straight and put your thumb next to your fingers, and you look at it on edge, that that edge is straight, the piece isn't curved or, or warped in any way, and that the edge is centered, that occurs very early on in the manufacturing process. If you were to look at pictures of some of the the book pieces, giant bifaces, and you'll see they're straight and the edge is centered. Well, that's as important uh, as, a pair of, as a pair of characteristics as the overshot flaking. And the point is, it's not does it have this you know X Y and Z characters. It's how many of these things they have at the stage they are in the reduction sequence. Obviously, the early stage. Face that's not quite recognizable as a preform probably isn't going to be fluted. Certainly not going to have basal edge grinding and and and, and lateral edge grinding. You, you have to pay attention to where you are in the manufacturing process. That said, is the solutrian and, and Clovis similarities convergence? Is it actual relationship? I don't know. Honestly, as we worked on this, I I was not necessarily a huge fan of the whole Iberian idea, but I I don't think it should be dismissed out of hand, and certainly reducing the argument to presence or absence of overshot flaking is is very misleading, and and really masks a lot of the subtlety on on really understanding both Solutrean and Clovis lithic reduction sequences.
0: Well, let's talk about Clovis Point. Um, what is a Clovis Point, and, and what isn't a Clovis Point?
1: <laughs> oh, man. One of the funniest things, and we've mentioned this you know, briefly, is that um, where you are on the lithic landscape really matters. The Clovis-type site, Blackwater Draw Locality number 1, out in the Llano Estacado in, in eastern New Mexico, is on a very lithic, poor part of the landscape. The two points found in the mammoth pit in 1936 are heavily resharpened. They're, they're both long and skinny and have very fine, um, I, I think most people would say, uh, uh, pressure reflaking. If you didn't have the basis you'd think they might be Edens or something later. The two diagnostic type Clovis points are terrible representatives of Clovis. They're way uh, heavily resharpened out of the, the normal range of things. Um, expression of of what we expect to see, certainly based on um, looking at more complete unused specimens. If you go to any of the caches and look at the unfinished points, there you see a lot more of the earlier stage uh, um, stages. Or I shouldn't say stages, steps or or um, characters that that haven't been obliterated in later resharping. The the pattern manufacturing evidence is still there that, that starts to get knocked off as things are broken, used in and you know, l- you know, lose portions of the point to attrition and they eventually get resharpened. The the biggest problem in that regard, I think, is trying to identify is something at Clovis point when it lacks a flute. Well, when you resharpen things down to the little nubs that have been found for killing mastodons and mammoths, such as the small point at Lang Ferguson in South Dakota. The smallest one was Kim'swick, when they killed a mastodon. Uh, some of the others we're talking about points, finished points that killed elephants that are 25 millimeters, that maybe an inch, maybe an inch and a quarter, inch and a half, very diminutive, very small, but they're still close. No, the, 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 the mammoth killing one that was recovered in '64 or something. At Blackwater Draw, that little tiny white one—it's—it's it, not even an inch, it's like seven-eighths of an inch. They are again harping on the notion of performance. The the efficacy of using these things uh, is really important, and what they look like is not so important. A, a really good example of this comes from the manufacturing side at Gaul. I think there's 45 Clovis points. This is my, you know know—I've been out of there a couple of years, so. It may be, I think it may be over 50 now, but at least 45, 46 Clovis points known from gold. One of them is missing an ear and is otherwise nearly complete. The rest are broken, beat to death, and used up. They've come back to the site where they can retool. They discard them. They chuck out the broken fragments and replenish the stock. And, and obviously we're making some massive material the the De and Reed cache, the the five bifaces with a eighteen centimeter late stage oh nearly unfinished point. Massive use of, of stone. They they the technological virtuosity demonstrated by these folks as nappers is, is, is unbelievable. And starkly in contrast with the hideously ugly, used up and, and abused Clovis points that are dropped off. Um, uh, at the end of their useful cycle.
0: Hmm. How did a, a, a Clovis craftsman turn a, a Clovis biface, pardon me, biface into a into a Clovis point? And 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 what I'm what I'm most interested in is, is is maybe you can contrast the the manufacturing process with another fluted technology like Folsom. Com- compare. Compare what the purpose of, of fluting was to to a Clovis craftsman, compared to what the purpose of fluting was to, to maybe uh, a, a Folsom craftsman. Were, were they the same? Just talk about that entire issue. It, that, that's always fascinated me.
1: Sure, sure. I realize I I didn't answer part of your previous question about contrasting what is Clovis with what is not Clovis.
2: Yeah, I'll mm-hmm. touch on
1: that a little bit here too. The um, early stage or earlier stage, bifaces and preforms really show um, one of of the mantras that that Bruce and Mike would both use is, Clovis fluted early, and they fluted often. That as you're reducing the biface from a a big chunk of stone down to your finished point, there are repeated removals from the basal end of things. And you really see this, again, I, I hate to harp on Fenn, but you also see it in this book as well, uh, and largely lifted from Fenn pieces and broken and manufacture pieces that were left behind at all. Um, they're not doing it end-on. It's not the same as Folsom or Cumberland or Redstone or any of the other later or non-Clovis fluted point technology. And I would include the Ganey and Eastern fluted and I know there's a lot of variability in there, but it's all something other than Clovis technologically. Particularly that uh, late-stage fluting that you see in the middle Paleo-Indian and later paleo stuff is comparatively rare on Clovis. It's really quite unusual to see a Clovis point where they made a flute near the end of the whole process. It's not the same as the Gainey uh ale, deeper kind of materials, or even fulsome. It's just something in the process has changed over time. They're doing it differently. Part of the reason, certainly in Clovis, it seems to be, like I said earlier, I suspect and I think the discussions that have come out of it that there's probably some folks that still think all the Clovis flutes are are like others or that basically need to be done with a a crutch or a punch or, or some sort of pressure and not just freehand percussion. Well, by not fluting right up the middle, but in fact fluting at a 30 or 45 degree angle off of one of the corners, what you'll see is a lot of times they trim the biface to center the flute, which is a very globus thing that is not seen later and is really not seen in those other wholesome contemporary or even potentially before fulsome things like games, that there's that, that that distinction is really important and probably not observed by enough people. The way to see this is if you look at a flute and you see the little um, lines in the, in, as the you know the wave travels up the length of the piece. The bubble percussion is gone, but you see the little radiating arcs, the, the, the and cone lines. A lot of times on big unfinished points where you have enough of the arc to see this the flute did not originate at the base, the centered base, and it was off-center at some point. And you can mm. see it in the flute still, but you can't tell much else about it. You don't know where the origination necessarily was. If they center the flute and it comes out how they want it, they don't flute it again. They just leave it alone. And when you see that, suddenly it's like, oh yeah, this is definitely different than what anybody after Clovis is doing. Um hmm. Is that enough for, on that? Uh, we, we, there's more to it, but...
0: Um. Keep, keep going, because I, I think for, for people who are interested in, in, in lithic technology, and particularly paleo-Indian technology, the, the difference in the fluting sequence between Clovis and, and Folsom, Crowfield, Debert, all of the folks that, that, uh, that... Is Dalton, if I'm not mistaken, that, that's, that may even be a, a, a fluted technology... Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, um, uh, Bruce wrote the chapter on the lithic technology in the Sloan book for Dan Morris, and yeah, absolutely. When you, it's really kind of eerie when you see mid-stage, early-stage broken Dalton preforms. They can be very difficult to distinguish from Clovis. The finished point, no problem at all. The uh, the fluting is essentially obliterated, even on large. Sloan quality, Sloan-sized Dalton pieces, something that in Clovis you don't normally see until you know, the points have been well used and used up, essentially. Um, there's a couple of things that, that can help with this. Uh, there's a couple of other really interesting things that occur in Clovis, one of which I'll, I'll mention in a moment about the removal of the flute termination. But getting to that point, the vast majority of Clovis flutes are removed from a beveled base. They are not isolating a little nipple projection like you frequently see in Folsom, even Gaining, and especially the other Eastern fluted kinds of material. It it happens, but it's really comparatively rare. You know, five percent of the sample, when you look at the flutes and broken bifaces from manufacturing sites, that what they're doing is in fact a freehand percussion with a circular percussor, whether it's a hard hammer or a soft hammer or, or a cortex-covered chert cobble. What happens is that the impactor hits that double surface and leaves a little semicircular mark. So when it, that, that, that's the point of impact. When it does that, the flute that's removed is obviously the mirror image of that, so it looks like a little nipple. And it's not. It's simply the point of impact that's retained or preserved that facet. The platform is still on the flake, uh, on the flute Mm -hmm. flake. When you see stuff like, the the best example of seeing this that I can come up with off the top of my head is the Broken Preform from Kincaid Rock Shelter, another um, very interesting site um, a ways west of San Antonio in Texas. The first flute I'm sorry, they had beveled the, the, the base, struck the first flute, and you, you can see where it looks like a, a really small nipple had been removed. But that's obviously not what had happened, and it's the negative, so it tells you that it, that it wasn't a nipple, it's just the, the, the negative image of where the impactor hit. Um, the flute went up the, halfway up the middle of the biface and, and came out. They flipped it over and tried to remove an overshot flake, that was going to get rid of the uh, the hinge termination. And so the, a lot of times, again, demonstrating or suggesting that freehand percussion is, is what the manner of removal of most flakes or most fluting flakes, is that the flute travels up the face of the biface, and if it feathers out, great, no problem. If it hinges, there's that little dip at the end. So if you look at the, the distal end of a flute, and there's a little dip there, uh, it's really telling you something about how they did it. And there's this very pattern removal of that dip at the flute termination by removing an overshot flake. There's a beautiful one that was found. Somebody was just walking down the, the road at Gull's, a complete. It looks like a bat wing. It's half of a bat wing. The platform's there. It's got a complete flake. It has an absolute horrible uh, hinge removed on the back of this overshot flake. Everything about it, this screaming diagnostic clovis. There's one mm-hmm. of those found at McFadden Beach too, a, a small one, but complete overshot flake with the hinge termination on the back that was actually retouched and used as some sort of cutting or scraping instrument. Um, mm-hmm. but again that particular thing. And the reason to get rid of that hinge in the middle, and this is more typical on the early and mid stage preform reduction. It's not on the finished point. You don't do this on a finished point because you've run out of thickness and width to pull this off. Um, It's to remove the weak point. We know from, you know, the breakage patterns, the vast majority of these things that don't break in manufacture, that actually go out and get used, break just ahead of the haft area. Well, unfortunately in the manufacture, if you leave that little hinge in at the point that they mostly break anyway because it's just ahead of where they've been hafted, you've created an uh a weak spot by making it the thinnest portion of the point. And so they're trying to spread that risk a little bit by getting rid of the deep little edge pit. And again, if you look at lots of if you look at a number of points, especially uh, late stage manufacturing, unused, good quality, you know, big points, you'll see this all over the place. And and I should say, I think we used data from hundred and twenty five different Clovis sites. And we used caches manufacturing uh, kill sites, and basically anything that had anything to contribute technologically. If we could find it, we, we brought it in and used it as part of our data set. So it's not... I, I, I'm repeatedly using examples from Gulp, but this is mature, this is pattern behavior you see from Florida to Venezuela uh, across the Americas.
0: How did Clovis people use their the Clovis points? Were, were they... Surely, projectile points, or were they attached to the end of a lance? would they be hafted knives uh, give us a give us your view there
1: <laughs> oh well we're moving into areas where i i, I don 't think Bruce or Mike would disagree with me too much, but I, I'd most certainly have my own ideas about that based on trying to account for the entirety of the Clovis record, the blade tools. There are the blades and blade tools, the biface tools, and especially the points, as well as the bone, antler, and ivory tools, that individually they may not tell the story or tell enough of the story for us to really tease these things apart, but when you try and account for the totality of of the archaeological record, admittedly as small as that is in the, the, the Reduced amount of material that's actually preserved that we've ever been able to see and, and, and analyze. It's telling us that there's a lot going on. You do see points reworked and made into other things. I don't. They, they bifacial points or, or you know Clovis diagnostic kinds of things can be used as cutting implements. I think that is the exception and not the rule or not the norm. Um, in part because if you have all the nice flakes, they're a far superior cutting tool than a bifacial edge is. Um, but also, again, sort of... I, I don't think there's that many multi-purpose tools in the Clovis Toolkit. They seem to make the right tool for the there's a lot of individual sockets. There aren't any crescent wrenches. is basically what I'm getting at here.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Does, does that sort of get sure. a? Mm-hmm.
2: mm-hmm.
0: Plate 7 in the book, um, it's a color plate. It, it makes a hugely important point. In this case, a picture is literally worth a thousand words. Describe what plate 7 is and, and describe the importance of that.
1: Oh, it's, um, the, the the title is simply Clovis Point uh, Reworking Compared to Two Clovis Point Prototypes. And the prototypes is the one on the top that I think is from Utah, and the one below is, is one of the bigger ones found in the 60s at Blackwater Draw. What's been done then is using just the outline of them, a number of different Clovis Points from across the country, some from Blackwater Draw, I see one from Floth Hole, a couple from Gulf and other things, have been placed inside that outline. And it's showing, do you have a, a full Clovis point that's just been reworked down to uh, a thinner or shorter piece? Is it broken? Are you looking at a rebase tip? Are you looking at a midsection? One of the really used-up things from Gulf looks like a a really tall gumdrop. But it's fluted. It's got the relic flute end. And so it, uh, that's 7G, if anyone's following along. It, it's very strange. It, 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 it's, a, it's a wonderful image to show one of the really important aspects of the book, and I, and I confess I don't know if it's... Re- I, I'd have to look through to figure out if where it's referred to, but I don't know if, if we made this point specifically referring to this page or not. But thus far, I've almost exclusively been talking about patterned behavior you know, lithic reduction trajectories that are repeated, again, with the caveat of being not, or being unconstrained by material quality and package size, that they go large and make really big, extravagant things. That pattern reduction behavior ceases when the point or tool, in any case, enters its productive, useful life cycle that that, from that point forward there is idiosyncratic damage and some patterns in the rebasing, resharpening, rejuvenation and curation or maintenance of these tools, but it is not patterned in the same way as the manufacturer in any way, shape or form, nor should we expect it to be. It it can't be because every one of those tools goes out and gets used in a very different way. And so as plate 7 shows, Sometimes it's just normal resharpening and the point still looks like a Clovis point. And other times, like this, the, the long gumdrop, and I, I apologize for such a horrible um, description, it doesn't look anything like a Clovis point at all. And if you wasn't found in the gul- Clovis assemblage, and, there, and there's basically across the site, four Clovis layers in 80 centimeters thick in one area, the upper two are divided from the lower two by as much as like 30 to 50 centimeters of sediment, that there's there's no doubt that this is Clovis other than the morphology. Technologically, it's still Clovis, but that plate, yeah, I think, like you say, in a thousand words, and I've probably said 500, and I'm not doing an adequate job of saying, when you look at that series of photographs, it's, it's a dozen or so Clovis points superimposed on those outlines. It really hammers home the idea that as these things are used, used up, maintained as long as they can, can be, or in fact, just used beyond when we would normally think you should get rid of them, especially like the the examples I used from Lang Ferguson, Kimswick, and Blackwater Draw, the little time points that were used to kill the elephants. The, the, the point remains that where you are on the lithic landscape is going to, in some respects, affect whether it's acceptable Clovis to use... Clovis technology to keep using this or not, and, and it's reflecting something probably about their behavior that we have not dwelled into very much, that I don't think it's entirely... I, I would say for myself, I'm not, I would want to spend some real time looking at collections and thinking about where we are on the landscape and, again, what kind of activities are being engaged in and, and see what that's telling us about the mindset of the people that, that use this whole range of material that, that deviates so much from essentially the stylized ideal that, that you know, maybe you, you use these two images from Blackwater Draw and the other one, I think, from Utah um, as, as just sort of the representative, unused versions of, of Globus points. The, the,
0: the book makes very good use of, of photographs and diagrams to, to just really, in a step-by-step fashion, show exactly what you're, you're trying to say, and boy, I tell you what, that that plate, uh, I, I looked at it and, and and studied it, and and it was just like a proverbial light bulb of of yeah, yeah. I mean I mean it's just it's just one of those very few you know uh, photographs that that combined with the rest of the photographs in the book really, re- you, you could you could literally talk for an hour trying to explain what that photograph does for you in in, in 15 seconds. It was i I just wanted to point that out because it was it was so oh, amazing, yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely the The range in used and used up clovis points and and we I mean, we do an endless amount of head scratching just looking at well, is this a Clovis or not? Well, at golf it's easy enough because the context is telling you, yeah, you know that, but if you've half of these points, if you found them as surface finds on those on the ground across the country. I I bet of the dozen or so shown, actually there's 14 shown. I, I bet you could, I bet you could get six of them but you couldn't get them. 10 people to say, "Oh, that's definitely clothing mm-hmm. But in point of fact, they are. Some of the really, there's a really uh, small and, and uh, asymmetric point. The the tip is not centered anymore. It's, it's slightly off center. It almost looks like it was going to get beveled. It was just poorly done. A little thing made out of excuse the alabase that's about three and a half centimeters, three centimeters long. Um, that was in the bison kill excavated at Blackwater Draw on 55. We know exactly where it came from, exactly what it was used for on a lithic part of the landscape. So we know why it was used. That's, that's what they had, and they used that. Um, but, the, uh, again, that idiosyncratic damage rejuvenation, the, the, the one-of-a-kind, one-off use life cycle, Boy, does it start to obliterate all of that pattern manufacturing that I've been talking about and that we talk about in the book so much.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's move to chapter five: ivory, bone, antler, and tooth artifacts. It's a big and, and, and pretty important chapter because uh, Clovis technology. The, the, this book that we're talking about is is uh, is important in, because it, it really, for the first time, you, you you get to see the the depth and the breadth. Of, of the ivory, bone, and antler uh, technology that, that, that the Clovis created, describe all that material for us.
1: Okay, well, uh, one of the things you said early on kind of hits the point on that, on, hits the nail on the head. I think we have data on twelve thousand Clovis points. The total tool assemblage of bone, antler, ivory, teeth, all of the relatively durable, perishable technology the entire tool assemblage is about 250 pieces, and that includes just little slivers of ivory tools that have come from a host of different rivers in Florida. That said, that small sample size is spread out over some very important sites. There's, you know, a dozen bone rods with the material at Wenatchee. Uh There's a few at Anzig, Shaman. There's a bunch of different things at Blackwater Draw. Floth Hole and the Osceola River here in Florida has been an incredibly productive location. Probably half the worked ivory in North America comes out of that one site. Um, There's maybe 15, maybe 17 kinds of ivory tools and another half dozen or or maybe maybe 10 other kinds of bone tools. And I mean the rods. uh, What, for lack of a better term, I don't mean to imply necessarily they're functionally daggers, but uh, the the third metatarsal of, of extinct Pleistocene horses, we know of now four examples of of those that were sharpened into a thing that looks like a dagger, about a foot a foot long, and they had a hole drilled in them in the proximal end um, that was as though you could put a thong on it, and, you know, wear it around your neck. I have no idea what that's really for, but made from identifiable elements of identifiable taxa, it's basically, if if they haven't been dated by context or directly dated themselves, you know, we run out of anybody but Clovis or potential pre-Clovis folks that were making and using these kinds of tools. The diversity is a really important aspect. They make all kinds of different things. Unfortunately, the the bone rods, and and most of them are bi All I think all of them at, at Wenatchee and most of them in antics, except for there is a, at least one point, maybe two, in there. Um, and I think a lot of those, a lot, a lot of them outside of Florida, we really have no idea what they're being used for. The, the notion of foreshafts has been around since uh, Howard thought points in 35, but then Cotter said in his first articles about the blackwater material, the, the bone pit material they were excavating in place, in 36 and 37, he said at first they could be four shafts, they could be points, and then after that I think he found the Alaskan literature and decided, well, they must be four shafts. And unfortunately that's stuck for so long that it's masked how many different kinds of tools there are. Various, very different, um, cross sections, uh, thicknesses, and use of single or, or, or bi-beveling. The, uh, only bi beveled piece in Florida is a puny little square in cross section piece. And it's broken at both of halves, so you don't you just see the markings and the scoring for the half on both ends. But it, it's like uh, maybe a quarter of the diameter of the pieces from um Wenatchee. And so you have a really small version of this kind of tool that you have no idea what they're being used for. Um hmm. Is there any particular area you'd like me to... You're hitting on my specialty now, and the thing that I know the most about, so uh, there's so much to say, it's really a little daunting to say. Well, any particular areas that are... Well, or you want me to hit a couple of highlights?
0: Well, let's start off with... with um, I, I saw a photograph uh, of a... Uh, uh, of a bone, I think it was a bone point that was found at, at Sheridan Cave, and there, there, was, there was some other evidence there uh, that came out of Sheridan Cave, and, and uh, just talk about, uh, I, I think you might know what I'm talking about, just just talk about, uh, 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 and I think it was a projectile point, I, I'm not certain, but... but
1: uh, I'm 100% convinced, Ever having made and used and broken, I don't even know how many of these with. with some of my friends here in Florida and, and other, other folks around the country uh, made and used and broke, I think, probably 500 bone points at this point, including several made out of uh, horse bones, which we could make very good replicas of bone points, the size of the globus specimen. The Sheridan Cave, both of them, actually, the two bone points, and it's shown on page 121 in the globus uh, Technology book, the the first one found is the one that's illustrated. You can get casts of it, and, and you can take a look at this. Right at the very end of the beveled path, at the back side of it, there's a little bump. And it's far better, far easier to see it on the, um, on the second one that was found. And there's an article in American Antiquity about that one. It's... Well, those two are among a very small handful of pieces that tell us exactly how they were hafting these things and how they were being used. Um, I know I've gone round and round with any number of folks, especially Jim Dunbar and other people around the country, about whether these Clovis tools are foreshafts or not. And I don't feel at this point we have a Clovis foreshaft in, in any archaeological assemblage. I don't think we've seen one yet. It doesn't surprise me if they use them. I just don't think... I mean, I can accept that they would have used them. I just don't think, archaeologically, we've recovered one yet. The Sheridan cave pieces absolutely are points. And in part, this little bump at the back end of it. Essentially, you take and half these by making a simple scarf joint. It's just two ramps that come together and form a half that if you glue it, wrap it in sinew, is exactly the same diameter of the... The shaft of of the dart or spear that you're making. It is an incredibly low-profile half. There is no big collar there, like has been shown in um, the four experiments where people have used adolatels and darts with four shafts to, to to launch Clovis material, Clovis points into into some recently deceased elephants. Every single one of those experiments goes right to the collar and and conks out. Well. The Sheridan Cave points are a really good example of manufacturing a half that is essentially the least amount of resistance that you can possibly come up with. The other piece of evidence that fits with this sort of line of argument that I'm making, yeah. um, I'm not sure if it's illustrated or not, I'm trying to flip as I'm talking here, um, is from the uh, Silver Springs at the head of the Silver River in Ocala, Florida. What's probably the largest single ivory tool in, certainly in Florida and probably North America. Um, it's broken, and it would have been probably a bit over 40 centimeters, when complete. The entire beveled haft is recessed about 2 millimeters so that it could have taken a great deal of cordage and mastic around the end of it, and you would have had... Not only would it have been easy enough to make the half the same diameter as the shaft of the dart or spear, but it would not have been any bigger than the diameter of the, the point itself uh, as, it, as it went out towards the point from, from the half-dead. Like, like I said, very limited evidence, uh, very limited direct evidence of how these things were hafted, and, and they sort of lead then to how these things were used. But the Sheridan Cave example has just this little bump, and it's particularly worn off on the first one. Once you see it, you know exactly what it is, and, it, and it's just screaming at us. How these things were used, and particularly informative about a couple of things. First off, why do we have the co-occurrence of stone points and these bone, as the case in Sher- Sheridan case cases, or uh, ivory, mostly from Florida, but also Blackwater Draw and some other places? Um, why do you have the co-occurrence of both of those? And, that, and that's a particularly
0: interesting question. I don't know if you want me to go into that right now or not. Though. Well, yes, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't there a photograph that came out of Sheridan Cave of a of the shoulder blade, a scapula of a, of a javelina peccary with with a, with, a, with a big hole punched right right through the middle of it that would have been made? And I think they even recovered the point that made it, didn't they? I think they believe that, the point, that one of the
1: points that's been recovered is the uh, specific one that made that wound. Um, using atolatals, uh, my friend Micah Monez uh, PhD student at University of Florida and I um, have thrown these at plywood at you know, hunted with them and thrown them at animals and stuff. Micah managed to put uh, a, a pretty close replica, maybe a hair sharper than the illustrated Sheridan Cave piece, through just poking out the backside of the second three-quarter inch piece of plywood mm-hmm. that these low-profile half very needle-like projectiles will go through anything. There, There is no hide equivalent to an inch and a half of, of plywood. And it took, um, finally it was I think the third shot that actually broke the point. It, they're incredibly durable. And um, Heidi Kinect's book, Projectile Technology, and, and specifically Christopher Ellis's chapter in there, I, I've relied on that. I think it's mentioned in 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 the book a couple of times discussing this. And and Heidi really picked up on it early on and and some of the things Chris said and and put it in the uh, preliminary chapters. Looking at, again, the co-occurrence of bone and stone projectile technology. Why do you use both? Why would they co-occur? The reason really boils down to, based on ethnographic um, interviews in Africa and talking with um, Native Americans and also looking at uh, some of the ethnographic historic literature here in on the plane. The bone points, any fool can make them. Like me, I, I can make all, the, all of the bone and antler and ivory tools in the Clovis toolkit. I can't turn an edge on a biface to save my life. I'm pretty good with the blades, but the bone points are incredibly durable. They do not fail in manufacture. This was not a point they made, but, but something to keep in mind. They, or they rarely are broken in manufacture. But they don't make the jagged, nasty wounds that you get out of the broader, sharp stone. The stone being brittle, one of the complaints about that is, from from those examples that they used in their um, chapters, was that wonderful wounds but brittle and can break and leave you essentially unarmed. The dart or the, 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 the bone and ivory points just take an incredible amount of use and like I say, they'll go through anything. You can make a horrible wound that's not going to do anybody any good. And it's important to keep in mind, and and this is one of those things that morphology and talking about flutes being used for bloodletting or any of those kind of other ideas, you can say stuff like that when you're holding a little point and you think, okay, what is this flute for? When you realize that you incorporate it in a weapon system, that this bone or stone point is simply the leading edge of a spear or a dart that's been launched, you realize that that point has one job, and that's to make a hole, and the force and the energy come from the seven-foot dart that's behind it. That's where you get the energy. That's where you get the damage. That's why you can use some of those points that were found in the elephants and, and illustrated in or, um, bison that are illustrated in place seven. The reason they can keep using those things is because their one job is to make a hole, and the dart and the force from launching it is going to drive that into, into the animal and make it a horrible wound. And that really um, explains an awful lot of the things that we've been talking about and why once you have an effective working tool, it, 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 it becomes or retains its serviceability for an awful long time. The amount of abuse and breakage can be overcome simply because the weapon system is functioning and its specific job that it's doing, it's still working just fine for that. They replace them later, but, but they, they keep using them for quite a while.
0: No, sorry, no.
1: no. Sorry, I, I really I sort of, uh, sidetracked myself a little bit, but again, looking at how does this all fit together? And, and I realize to generalize from a, a very specific uh, example that we're talking about with what specific forms of tools look like, but they really, and I would always want to do that, I would mean to do it more intentionally, is simply say, these things do fit together. This is Clovis technology, but it's really that portion of Clovis culture, and obviously whatever they called themselves, it wasn't Clovis, but... Um, That's what we're really after. We're looking at prehistoric human behavior, the cultural adaptation, the exploitation of resources, the how and the why and the what, that the Clovis technology is the tantalizing glimpse we get that opens up avenues of inquiry and and some of those other doors that we get to peek inside and and see how they made a
0: living. Mm -hmm. The the book illustrates these long-pointed ivory rods that almost look like bayonets, and some of them are curved, some of them are straight, some of them are curved. What did the Clovis hunters use those things for?
1: I, <laughs> I'm scooting out on that limb again where I'll say uh, this is largely my own view of things, and I, I, again, I think Bruce might be pretty close to eye-to-eye with me on this, so I think there isn't too much discord between the authors here. Um, I mentioned trying to dis- to to come to grips with why there are stone and bone points, and really I was talking about short, straight bone and ivory points. In that sample of 250 roughly total um, organic tools from Clovis assemblages, probably 100, 125 of them, at least half really, maybe a bit more than that, are these lancelet-looking things, very long, uh, slightly curved pieces of ivory from Florida. There's a very strange thing going on in Clovis, and, and I, this is sort of where we start putting everything together. The stone points look like they do. There is a short, and by this I mean 250 millimeters or 25 centimeters or shorter, and they're roughly from 12 to 25 centimeters straight points, and then these long curved things. And if they're 25 centimeters or longer, out to as much as 40 centimeters, without exception they are curved with the half on the outside of the bevel. It is absolutely intentional. We know that from some of the manufacturing debris. uh, Specifically, the 30 centimeter or 31 centimeter long uh, uh, piece James Hester in the Clovis book in 73 described as a bison rib point. It's not that piece is in Austin, Texas, in the Taro collection. It's ivory. It is an unfinished version of one of these things, and it's curved already. And the tusks are straight enough along big sections that they do not have to make them curved. They are not being rebounded into a curve. They are being intentionally manufactured. So within the the full Clovis repertoire, we know of at least stone Clovis points, short straight bone and ivory points, and long curved ivory points. I think those are probably being hafted and used on handheld lances. They're curved very much like the time on a pitchfork. I suspect they're being used as something of a defensive weapon in a very similar fashion to, you know, just as a big poking device. There's been some speculation that they were used as a coup de grace weapon that if you needed to walk up and poke a dying animal in the heart or lung or whatever, they are like a gigantic needle on the end of, these, uh, on the mm-hmm. end of a handheld spear. Again, trying to account for the co-occurrence of all three of these things, uh, it, at least that explanation fits. I don't know that it's correct, but it's the best I've come up with so far, and I, I think that's really what's happening but it's a different kind of tool being used in a fairly specific manner. Of particular interest on a couple of them, and and we do illustrate one from Sloth we only illustrate one side of it. It's the haft area that there's a zigzag design carved in one stroke. It's 28 up and downs in one stroke. There's another one on the other side that's a little bit fainter. It's worn a little bit more. And uh, Dave Webb, the um, paleontologist who ran the Osceola project and and a number of other things over for years at the Florida Museum. had suggested that you know the 28 up and downs may represent a lunar calendar. Speculation, admittedly, but an interesting thing to keep in mind. And uh, using a little flake to, to inscribe this on the side of a piece of ivory, it was, it was a real trick to do it in one one shot without lifting the flake up.
0: Well, as illustrated in the book, those those. Bone, or pardon me, those ivory rods that 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 are just absolutely needle sharp, and they look like giant needles. You put those, you put one of those on the end of a of a ball, and you could you could put that right through somebody just with zero effort. And you could, and and uh, a, an animal laying on the ground as a as a as a finishing weapon. Uh, uh, those were. I mean, that, that was a very fearful weapon. How did they make them? Did they, were they sanded or were they carved? I mean, ivory is pretty tough stuff.
1: It's actually really interesting. Based on material from Blackwater Draw, Sloth Hole, and a couple of sites in the um River here in North Florida, I think we've got a decent case based on essentially debitage that we can talk about exactly how they went about making these ivory tools. Um, uh, Jeff Saunders described from Blackwater Draw what they called the uh, semi-fabricate. It's the area of the tusk just in front of the pulp cavity. Um, elephant and mammoth mastodon tusks grow uh, from the inside of the skull out. And essentially the pulp cavity, imagine you had a stack of plastic cups and you just added a new one at the top of the stack and it just kept pushing out towards the front, towards the tip of the tusk eventually you will end up with nothing but bottoms compressed together. And that's really what you get for the, for the dense, compact ivory out in the, the front half of the tusk. Mm-hmm. On a mastodon, probably at least four feet of that. On a, on a uh, mammoth, you might have five, maybe six feet, depending on if it's a really large individual. Well, the semi-fabricate was girdled and snapped uh, just past the end of the pulp cavity. So it's really the tip back a little bit more than two feet from, from the tip. Um, and it was just set aside, but it's very clearly an artifact. Like when I say pecked, they took some sort of chopping tool, maybe a biface, maybe a big flake or a cobble or chopping tool of some sort, and just beat that snot out of it until it got to be about a centimeter or so in diameter that was left. It might've been an inch left and they just broke it. Somebody just snapped it off. This, this, Pecking and snapping is very common throughout the the pieces that we see. Um, Any evidence of manufacturing uh, of the bone and ivory tools really seems to center on that's the method of production. The other piece that came out of um, a collection by um, an incredible uh, early diver here in the Florida River named Alvin Hendricks, he got a a piece of a tusk out near the tip that vaguely looks like one of those uh, ice cream treats, a drumstick. Mm -hmm. Again, it's been pecked down to about a centimeter or so in diameter and then just snapped off. But here there's something really interesting going on. The tips of these tusks come out to sort of a triangular asymmetric point. And of course they're used and beat up and broken and abused during the life of the animal. They're not really suited for what these folks were doing prehistorically. They basically discarded the tips and the area behind the pulp cavity. So you have a really interesting pair of of items here. The important thing about the piece from here in Florida is that, and I'll just kind of briefly the the morphology of tusks for a second. Tusks are the mother of all buck teeth. They're they're incisors that have gone haywire. They lack enamel, so they don't have the hard outer surface that all other teeth do. They have a roughly quarter or half-inch uh, thick layer of cementum on the outside and the bulk of the t- the, the tusk is dense. So if you get into the, the area in front of the pulp cavity, it's all dense, tightly compacted, dense. So when you, in this case, using the Florida piece as the example, when you remove that first 8, 10 inches, which they did, they've actually husked the tusk. They've gotten down to the point where there is, The cementum has been removed, and the more porous outer layers of dentin have been removed as well. And so between the Blackwater Draw and Florida pieces, what it looks like you end up with is the densest, most compact, darn near straight section of ivory is about two feet long, maybe a bit more, and probably about the, the size of the barrel head of a Louisville slugger. It's about the size of a baseball bat, if you imagine it's, you know, three, four inches across maybe. It could be a little bit bigger than that. But I use the the bad analogy simply to say it it really is the sweet spot. It is the nicest, highest quality material, and all of the tools appear to be made out of that kind of material. Also, at Blackwater Draw, I mentioned that there was a billet. It's a little 10-centimeter long piece of ivory that is actually from the very center of the tusk at the very end of the pulp cavity. The the blackwater draw billet is exactly the piece that would have been adjacent to what Saunders called the um, semi-fabricate. But it's like they cut off the front of the tusk, got rid of the piece that was sort of debitage, and used that as a billet, and then for whatever reason didn't didn't continue the manufacturing with this two-foot-long tip of the tusk but we see that rest of that story picked up at um, Sloth Hole and in and in um, the Itchutucky, where we see this, this piece of debitage from out near the tip of the tusk. At Sloth Hole, we had an area we excavated largely in the surface assemblage, but in, in rocks where it's, it's jagged limestone. I, I swam over it earlier this summer, and um, I had a permanent cut on my hand for about six weeks. It's jagged limestone. Things are not moving around. I say surface assemblage, but but things are really probably vertically deflated and not moving around a whole lot in this area um, horizontally. Three square meters, we found 4,300 pieces of ivory that essentially had chatter marks. It looks like what they were doing is taking that two-foot-long barrel of a bat-sized piece of dentin and splitting it. It really Mm. looks like the the chatter march or the split ripping of um, um, splitting cordwood. It it, it looks an awful lot like that. In Mm. those three square meters, 4,300 pieces of um, ivory, like I said, uh, four Clovis points, two of them, the absolute most beat-up pieces on the site, one of them almost looks as though it had been used as a pied skate. It looks like it was used as a wedging tool and that they were u- driving that in to split the split the ivory into sections to, you know, get splinters that were usable as those long shafts or as the long points. Then the manufacturing evidence that survives on the fragments or the complete or nearly complete um, long ivory lances and points looks for all the world. It's very clear they're They're taking a flake on edge and just shaving these things down into the form that they want they have uh, almost you know if the if the lamp point is roughly a centimeter in diameter there'll be fifty or sixty micro facets the length of that thing where they just shaved it down and then burnished the heck out of it so it's just incredibly shiny very um, you know, it, it, it just compresses all the pores to burnish them like they did and leaves them shiny 13,000 years later. It's, they're incredibly durable when they've been, you know, sort of given the whole manufacturing treatment. So I think we're at a point where we have a pretty good understanding of exactly how these things were manufactured and getting better at understanding how they were used and, in fact, broken as we um, you know, continue to make and use and, and abuse these things and try to replicate what we've seen archaeologically. Mm.
0: Marilyn Schoberg and John Lose made important contributions to the book. Tell us about what their part of the book was and and what it was like working with them.
1: Oh, man, yeah. I mean, that was really the the beauty of having Bruce at the Galt Lab and and the number of folks that that came through there, Dave Madsen being there, and, and of course, uh, Mike Holland, um, that... Every day, we had very interesting discussions. There A a lot of the kinds of things we're bringing up now, and and unfortunately, you only get my take on it right now, but uh, Mm -hmm. these discussions and and the things I'm saying really come out of a lot of the things we hammered out as we looked at the archaeological record at Galt and how it related to the rest of the Clovis world and and, and talked about these things. So uh, Marilyn is a a micro-ware and micro-use analyst R. Um, I would make and use and beat up and break a lot of these things um, or various tools, both the stone and uh, antler and ivory, uh, trying to replicate some of the things we were talking about. Uh, I, I, Bruce would make lots of stone blades. He'd, at, at night, he was actually staying at uh, Mike Collins' uh, guest house, which is an incredible story in itself for another time. Um, but on his property in, in Austin and when um, Mike had gone out of town on a vacation at one point for a while so Mike, or so Bruce would come over in the evening and out of my porch sort of mine the pile of nice Edwards Plateau cobbles that I'd accumulated that much to my chagrin I really can't do a whole lot with so Bruce would just sit there and make stuff and he made a lot of blades and a lot of um, cores and, and tools and then I'd make tools out of them and work bone and other things well so I would take flakes that were broken in a particular fashion, used for, you know, X amount of time, and, and bring those um, as replicas of things that Maryland was looking at. And so we had a, we developed a pretty good comparative sample of, of known uses. And, and, boy, it's frustrating, like, when you know you need this flake to just show back and forth wear to just go back and forth and not use it in a diagonal or, or a cutting mm-hmm. fashion otherwise. But... Um, it, the, the insights that, that she had, in particular, based on, 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 on documenting exactly what these things were being used for, of course, make all of the arguments that much more robust. It, you know, it's based on not just interpretation of what they were doing, but but based on what the physical evidence is telling us these things were made and used for, for as well. Um, my, my favorite, I think, it was one of Marilyn's favorites at one point was. Um, I I was trying to make um, eye needles in in some bone, and I realized I had to resharpen my pressure flaker in a particular way to make a graver spur that was small enough to drill a hole that was one millimeter across into the top end of an ivory or into a bone needle. And when I had done that, and she had a beautiful micrograph of it that she put up on the wall for a while, that, um, you know, it sort of told that whole story of, looking at the tips of the tools, and here's the finished product, and what it took to get to that. And, and I realize I'm sort of dwelling more on the my interaction with, right. in, in the parts that I contributed with Marilyn's stuff, but she's the one that figured out the sickle sheen on the large serrated blade, um, and really told us specifically what a lot of these things were being used for, and, you know, obviously tells the story that you can't get at otherwise. Um this, People, off, like, but,
0: people like Marilyn are a national resource. <laughs> so,
1: oh yeah, so, absolutely. She's, yeah. you know we're we're, we're we're speculating on a lot of these things, and using as much of our you know descriptive powers and, and uh, intuitive understanding of these things as we can. But, but really, adding that additional layer of physical descriptive evidence is you know it, it's, the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. That that's where you really tell what these things were being used for. Mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. Well, looking at all of it, you know, the whole of Clovis technology that that we know about, anyway. What can you say about the people? What, what, can, you say, what, what can you say about the Clovis people? Just looking at the technology that we've got.
1: Well, okay, th- this is a beautiful segue into discussing uh, John Lose's chapter. A critically important thing to understand is that unlike people like myself and, and other and and makers and users of these things, and archaeologists in general. Um, I I don't think I made... I don't think I threw a dart with an atlatl until I was in my 20s. never thought of making any of this stuff until I was probably close to 30. We're talking about people that are acculturated from birth or just after. They grow up entirely encapsulated in a society where it's not a quaint experiment I'm doing on my porch or something spearing fish out in the afternoon. These tools matter. It's genuinely, I don't mean to be overly dramatic, but it, it's life or death in some respects. That if things don't work, you don't eat, or you certainly don't eat that day and, and um, you jeopardize your own survivability. John's chapter really focuses on the acculturation, and, and one of the things with a gigantic assemblage, something on the order of 600,000 Clovis, Clovis lithics at Galt, that you really get to tease apart are the misses, the mistakes, and really the learning pieces. And that's what's really exciting about some of the stuff at Galt. There are pieces where you can see somebody was practicing that sort of diagonal corner fluting I was talking about. There's a little face where it's been done, I think, or if you think on each face, there's four corners, essentially. Um, I think it was done eight times. Something crazy like that. It was absolutely clear that somebody was just practicing removing a particular kind of flake on the face of that biface.
0: These are kids, right?
1: Yeah. Um, as I, I, I hope I don't blow Mike's line here. It's... Um, It's the Clovis tune, but the words are wrong. That you can see somebody is trying to do a very characteristic, or even in some cases, diagnostic Clovis task in the reduction sequence of a biface, just for this example. But they're not quite getting it right. There's some spectacular bifaces where they're really quite good. It's very clearly Clovis, very clearly done in that manner, but they're not straight. They had everything, but they couldn't make it straight. Well, that's a pretty critical component to, you know, making a projectile. It really shouldn't be designed for shooting around corners.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. And again, talking about um, that point of these things mattered. This wasn't for fun. It wasn't for, you know, experiments goofing around or whatever. It, It really mattered to get these things right. And you can see that in some of the pieces that are very clearly practice pieces that the acculturation process takes time. Nobody's born inherently um, knowing how to make things like gigantic clothes points. I, I don't care how good a man for Bruce Bradley is. He wasn't born knowing how to do this. <laughs> mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: And he'd be the first to admit it, and, and, and that's one of those really important things that we've tried to look at, and especially um, John Mose and Mike Collins have, have spent some real effort looking into, you know, where else do we see this? And and again, we're talking about in the Clovis world, but this applies obviously to essentially all time periods in all prehistory, that that the technology of of whatever anybody was doing is not inherently instilled at birth that that you have to learn. And big surprise, the the sponge-like monkeys that we are, we absorb these things based on whatever cultural group we're born into. And uh, seeing that that learning and growing embedded in stone is, is really something else. I, I shudder to use this example because it's solutrian, um, and I don't mean to imply a connection with Clovis, but there's a really splendid example of this that um, uh, Bruce Bradley uh, has told us and showed us a couple of slides of uh, from somebody else's work in a cave in France. It looked like you, know, you every now and then you can see where people's feet were based on the outline of micro-debitage that's recovered around where their feet were sitting, like if they were on a stone and, and they're napping around themselves, you can see that they didn't really move around. They were sitting right here. I think in this particular example, there was five or six folks uh, sitting in this cave napping. And the kid had a problem. And this was this gigantic biface; It's probably 25 centimeters, maybe a little bit bigger, uh, long and probably... 8 or 12 centimeters across. It was really quite wide. It was really a massive biface. And they got a stack and they couldn't remove it. They kept attacking it from one side. And, and the way they know this story happened this way is all the fitting pieces are right there except for one giant overshot flake. It had been, the, the biface had been handed over about six feet away and I think it was from not the next person but the second person over and sitting in their pile of debitage was the missing overshot flake that, that the real master of napping there had knocked off the one flake and handed it back.
0: My God, what a story.
1: To see that preserved in the archaeological record, if you move the flake, you lose that story. And, mm. I mean, an absolutely unbelievable, you know, slice moment in time, a very brief moment of, here's how you do it, and this is, here, here's about, now finish this.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it, it's one of those kinds of things. Now, we don't have quite as, as dramatic example as that uh, at Galt or in the, in the things that John and Mike and I and, and Bruce had looked at, but it, it's on that trajectory. It's, it's it's teasing out those little things of the direct evidence of how did they do this, how did you learn to do this, and what did that look like exactly? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it leads to some speculation. I think... Is this a craft specialization 13,000 years ago? I, I, I don't know, but but um, we're certainly born with differential abilities. We're not all equal in all respects. That some people just obviously became very good at doing these things, the manufacture of these things, and I think you do see that reflected in the archaeological um, remains that we recover, but seeing how they got there is not always so obvious. Mm.
0: Well, let me change tact here for just a little bit. Uh, we could we could talk about uh, cl- I could talk about Clovis technology for for hours, and and uh, uh, as a matter of full disclosure, Andy and I sometimes do talk about Clovis technology for hours.
2: <laughs> 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 but,
0: but but here but but, but I've I I've prepared a couple of questions for you to to. Uh, uh, To to throw you off your game here a little bit. Uh, The first one is a billionaire philanthropist hears this interview and gives you, he's willing to give you a million dollars with one mandate. A year from now, tell me three new exciting things about the Clovis people. Do you take the money? And if so, what projects would you pursue?
1: Oh, man. Yes, absolutely. I, 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 I could, I would not need a year. I, in, if I could buy plane tickets right away, within a week, I could tell you at least one thing that would flabbergast us. Um, and, and really, I would, I would go after the low-hanging fruit first. I would go and look at some of the collections uh, around the country and even around the world um, in various museums and, and in private collections and work on some very specific kinds of analysis and actually try and relocate a couple of sites that have essentially gone missing for a number of years. In part because some of the collections survive and they're incredibly informative. But um man, I I, I would that would be the low hanging fruit. If I really had a year, then I would go after trying to pursue probably some of the um exact same kinds of things we've been talking about at some of the sites that are right now underwater, is it'd be the first one I would probably go after. Simply because well, I should I shouldn't say simply. Because as we get farther and farther out on the edge of that Pleistocene Clovis or pre-Clovis age landscape, we get farther and farther away from the landlocked version of what we know as Paleo Indians, and in this case, particularly Clovis, that as we get closer to that marine habitat that's now inundated and that, of course, has nothing to do with the terrestrial versions of what we've ever seen, we should see exploitation, utilization of new and different or novel resources that we don't typically associate with Paleo-Indians simply because of the proximity and the the lack of accessibility to those sites, that we should see behavior and an adaptation that is different than anything we know right now. And so some of the underwater sites that we've specifically been working like across the uh, paleo Swanee channel, boy, if I had the ship time and the money to pull it off, I'd, I'd go sit there with a big dredge that I have for, for a couple of weeks and, until we punch through that marine mantle. And we're at a uh, site where there's chert uh, in the bedrock. The bedrock itself is chert on the edge of the old Suwannee Channel. We have every expectation that if we get into that, that that would be a little bit farther down the line, but that would be one of the first things I'd go after. But immediately, I would I would do a little bit of collections research, and knowing what I know about them already, there's some very interesting things. Uh, actually, one of them I found uh, yesterday that I would go after right away because there's a bunch of missing Clovis material that was found in the 30s from a Western site that has never resurfaced again, and it's a gigantic void uh, on the Paleo-Indian, distribution maps of the continent. its I'm, I'm frankly astonished the people that were involved and in, never brought it up again. It's never been mentioned um, again that I've ever seen, and, and it, it was not in archaeological literature that I found it. It was actually a biography of somebody else that had only a passing interest in archaeology. So Anyway, anyway there's things like that that um, where people were on the landscape and the specific kinds of things we were doing uh <laughs> if you're interested in helping with that please uh <laughs> my <laughs> my email <laughs> um yeah we, we, there would be but, but, it would but be money said, well spent we would we would very quickly come out with quite a number of things uh but, that we did not previously know and be very informative about a whole
0: host of news but but, but what you said what you said earlier so with the proper funding you said that you could you could do something dramatic and exciting in a week.
1: Yeah. And I say a week only because it would take a couple of days to make phone calls and, and, um, uh, arrange travel. Mm. There, there's, there's some wonderful things that are, um, <laughs> shovel ready tests and, and, and analysis that could be done very quickly. There's some, uh, I am not even. I'm not even talking around my best gem. I really have something that that instantly would go after, and it would be quite literally an international sensation.
2: Hmm.
1: That, that it would be um, something that it would be a monstrous diplomatic coup if we were able to pull it off and, and actually re- relocate some material that's been missing for a long time. Wow. Okay, you...
0: Please, help. Help, yeah. (laughs) Give me a call, I'll tell you. (laughs) All right, so you you go to a secondhand store, you find an antique bottle, and you rub it. A genie appears and grants you the answers to three questions about the Clovis people. What are your three questions?
1: Oh, the first one's going to be about language. Probably language and kinship. Just, if that counts as one question. I would just, I, I might okay, I get the language in Kinship by it. what are your names for your relatives? Because the next one would probably be genetic to some extent. Uh, but the first one would be that, that just bothers me among the most of anything about this is that we spend so much time worrying about the tools and, and objects and, and use of landscapes and use of resources And we just have no idea what these people called themselves. We have no idea what kind of language they spoke. We don't know where it came from or where exactly they came from. And we're still arguing when they came. So to me, that would be the the very first one would be about that. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe I would ask for Clovis the postcard series so I could see campsites or something and see what other tools, what other kinds of things we were... um, Um, Were missing. Like I, I I used to make a joke. Basically, that you know, we have no idea if the Clovis people were tattooed blue from head to foot and spoke only in iambic pentameter. You know, in some bizarre, you know, poetic rhyme scheme. Mm -hmm. We just archaeologically, we can't. We're going to need a genie to answer those questions. Mm -hmm. So those, my first ones would probably be genetic. And I don't know, maybe my, my, my third wish would be, can I spend a month or a year living with these guys?
0: I was going to ask that if, if the genie were to offer to transport you back in time, would you, would you go back a year?
1: I get to bring my glasses. <laughs> 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 I'm not particularly keen to step on a, a landscape that still includes, you know, short-faced bears and Dire wolves and uh, American lions. Oh my! Um, without being able to see very well, <laughs> um, if I could, yeah, in a heartbeat. Um, and I realize that it probably doesn't come with a guarantee that I get to come back in one piece. But I, I would, I would definitely take a shot at it. I would, I would try.
0: You're you're a lot longer leg than I am. I'm afraid if I went back, the the entire group would walk off and leave me in the first day. I mean it. Well, they may do that, but at least I'd get
1: to see them and, and learn some things that I, I didn't previously know and <laughs> <laughs> at least answer some of these questions, hopefully, before I, before I go out.
0: What have you been doing this year? What's been? What, what, how have you been using your time?
1: Oh, man. Um, well, we excavated at Vero for our second season from the first week of May. I'm sorry, first week of June through the... I grief. I've got heat stroke. We were there for the first week of January until uh, about the middle of May or so. Um, That was our second season excavating adjacent to where um, Elias Sellards dug a a century ago. We are um, now looking at over 500 pieces of carbonized bone and charcoal and even some sediment, probably about 10%, maybe 50 50 or so pieces of bone, um, that are all burned size-sorted, winnowing down from the upslope from where we think we're going to get a hearth next year. Um, as I touch wood here. Um, it, uh, it looks like a material that's bracketed by calendar years, 11, 1, and 14,000 at the bottom. Uh, this layer is just filled with different amounts of, of burnt stuff on a fairly xeric or dry savanna landscape adjacent to a pond seeing especially the teeth of what we've tentatively identified as a dire wolf and a uh, uh, Pleistocene horse. This is a big square-looking molar. Um, that uh, it, it takes some real heat to burn them, and you're on a landscape that really doesn't have a lot of trees, and again, it's adjacent to a very wet pond marsh environment. Without humans, it's really difficult to explain how all this material would have been concentrated this many different species of plants and animals burnt as long as it was, as hot as it was. It really defies natural explanation. So I think we're looking at anthropogenic material adjacent to a campsite. Uh, as we continue to move the next two, three meters to the west in our excavation, uh, we're moving up on top of the dune adjacent to the uh, It's a 100,000-year-old Sagamon dune uh, next to the, the old pond, where all these wealth of plants and animals accumulated. Uh, I think this could be a very big year for us, and it's the centennial year of the discovery of Veroban. And um, we're uh, looking forward to being the tour on the SAA's in Orlando in April too. We're quite excited about that, and we have a couple of fun announcements that we bring out at that point too. Um, I, after that, then worked in the Oscilla for just a little bit, trying to we pounded some cores into the terminal Pleistocene and 30,000-year-old late Pleistocene sediments in a couple different parts of the site uh, and then went and did very similar kinds of things on a little bit grander scale uh, uh, 25 miles offshore on the old Suwannee Channel out in the Gulf of Mexico and I had the singularly wonderful surprise of uh, 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 taking a scooter with, with a, a wonderful videographer named David Uloa, a very good friend of mine we took a scooter a mile across or not not quite a mile but more than a kilometer across the old Swanee Channel, and then we're looking at the landscape out there. And as we surfaced, um, uh, Remore came up to us and was hanging out. And we both knew that, that meant somebody bigger is lurking around. And so with our heads on a swivel, we finally saw uh, about a seven or eight foot uh, great white shark came up and took a look at us. Mm-hmm. So it was just as curious as we were, but um, I, uh, that was a uh, singular experience that wouldn't recommend for everyone. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. um, and a hundred pounds of air just disappeared in a very short while. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And I was a little disturbed that, that my dive buddy felt that the safest thing to do in that situation was to just push me towards the shark.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Not really. I tried to push you, but <laughs> um, and then so now I, I actually just came back from Mercyhurst last, uh, a couple of days ago. I had been up there and, and brought a lot of the Vero bones and artifacts that I've been working with here um, to get entered into the catalog and, and labeled by some of the students this fall. And then also all the cores went up and so we'll start process, processing those in the next few days. So keeping pretty busy with, you know, uh, a number of different projects going on. Um, all over Florida, and all really focused on the, the early time period. And, and, and again, looking farther and farther on that edge, on the on the then edge of the Pleistocene landscape that we had people. There's, uh, now we know of two Clovis points in Indian River County over around Vero, that, that Vero Beach is in. And um, that's really about as far south and in the continental United States as we know of any, especially along the Atlantic seaboard. So um, hmm. on both coasts of Florida, looking at, you know, what the first people into those areas were up to and what kind of things they were doing, so. It'll be volume two of Clovis Technology, as we fill that out a little bit with hopefully stranger and stranger things at progressively earlier and earlier time periods.
0: Well, I've been sworn to to double secrecy, and so so I I really can't talk about it, but I know that you're about to rewrite Paleo-Indian history, and the history of Paleo-Indian history. When are you going to start making the announcements of some of this stuff?
1: (laughs) Well, some of it I hope to have ready, and, and, and that we're able to discuss in an intelligent way um, by the time of the SAAs in April, the Society for American Archaeology meetings, or in Orlando, as luck would have it this year. So, um, some of it by then. But um, it, it's funny. I um, I think yesterday, after getting back from a thousand-mile trip in the car after dropping off all the specimens, um, my brain's pretty well fired up, and I think I wrote uh, in total almost six pages of text um, on four different articles and chapters that I'm working on right now, so um, doing that with all the annotated, you know, chapter and verse of where things come from and stuff. Um, I I, I said to my wife that I think it was the single most productive writing day I've had since I finished my dissertation. Mm -hmm. That I've had... Uh, I've found some pretty neat things lately and and they're coming. They're coming. As soon as I can get them out, they're coming. But uh, like I say, I'm, I'm... Hammering tongs right now, writing as quick as I can. Cause there's some really fun stuff that everybody really should know about. So um, certainly by April there'll be a couple of these things coming out.
0: Yeah, I I, I can't wait to uh, to to hear about some of this stuff. It's it's uh, going to be very very exciting for people interested in uh, in Paleo Indians and in, in, in North America. Well, we've gone long today. We always we always seem to do it every time we talk. We we, we go long, and I, and I thank you very much for. For, for, for being here um, uh, oh of
1: course I appreciate you know the opportunity and you know I, I think it's the Clovis technology book what we've learned there and what I'm up to now trying to find new things that, that it's important not just to learn these things but also the received wisdom or the things that have become common knowledge that it's real important to us all of us to understand why we know what we think we know and that's where the history comes in. It's just, it's obviously in a historical discipline. We should continue to keep track of where good ideas and where good data come from. And I think that all goes into trying to figure out the past prehistoric human behavior that we're really interested in at sort of the macro level.
0: Well, thank you again for joining us today. <laughs>